You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. This is Roy Showman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment of Judaism and all of its promise in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. And um, I, I do also want to say that one of my favorite things to do on the show is to have Jewish, quote, converts, close quotes, the Catholic Church on, to tell of how the Lord worked in their lives to bring them to the completed form of Judaism, the fullness of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church. And um, I don't have one for today, uh, but I uh, have a couple lined up. So in the next couple of weeks, uh, we will have a couple. And uh, if I may make a little bit of a digression, I hope it's okay to talk about. But I did have one lined up for today who is actually a Jewish convert to uh, Protestantism. And I may still have him on, but there were some issues that were raised by his understanding or, uh, excuse me for saying so, his, his failure to understand what makes the Catholic Church unique. That made me a little bit uncomfortable, but which raised the following thought in my mind, which was uh, Old Testament Judaism, Judaism as it was given to the Jews by God, was an extremely sacramental and sacrificial religion and liturgical religion. It had a very strict liturgy. It had, of course, a, um, a very strict sense of the sacraments. It had basically the, the basic sacrament in Old Testament Judaism was animal sacrifice, but everything was affected through the sacraments. The remission of sins was affected through the sacraments. Thanksgiving to God was affected through the sacraments, that is, through the animal sacrifice in the temple and so forth. And it's, of course, it was a very high view of worship, the temple worship, was, for instance, it was restricted to the uh, sacramental priesthood. There were very strict rules about the vessels to be used, the behavior of the priests, the necessity for purity, and so forth. So it was a very kind of strict liturgical, elevated sacramental religion. If Judaism were that today, I think that when Jews come to faith in Jesus, it would be much more natural them, for them to see that the fulfilled form of Christianity must be the Catholic Church, because in the Catholic Church, the Jewish sacramental and sacrificial life has been carried over through the sacrifice of the Mass, being the fulfilled version of what the Jewish animal sacrifice is simply a picture of. And a lot of the liturgy has carried over, and the sacramental sense the um, elevation of the priesthood, the separation of the priesthood from the laity, the nature of a temple worship um, being transposed to the nature of church worship, but in a special place with a very special formula and so forth. But since Judaism today is uh, not sacramental, because basically since the destruction of the temple, the only, uh, the core of Jewish worship is essentially getting together in synagogue and singing the praises of God and reading from the scriptures, that is a much more logical basis from which to become Protestant, if you see what I mean. So as I was talking to this young man, I realized that coming from contemporary Judaism, it would be very logical to see Protestantism as the 
uh, Jesus-inclusive version of that form of wor- worship, whereas if he had been coming from Old Testament Judaism, it would have been much more difficult, if not impossible, to see that, to see the Protestant form of worship, which, um, especially in the form of Protestantism that this young man was involved in, uh, did not have much of a liturgy, did not have much of a structure, uh, was entirely bottom-up, uh, didn't have much of a sacramental life and so forth. One could see how coming from, you know, uh, 1990s Judaism, one might see that form of Christianity as a logical progression. So when I saw that gulf there, I decided that there may be some some stumbling blocks we still have to get over before we can have that conversation on air. So uh, I do have some other Jewish to Catholic converts lined up for shows in the near future, but for today I was going to begin by reading the account of one. This is from a book called Atheist to Catholic, Stories of Conversion. Not all the converts in this book are from Judaism. Most of them are not, but this one happens to be. And in fact, I hope to someday soon perhaps have him on the show. But in the meantime, let me read his relatively brief uh, witness testimony from Atheist to Catholic. His name is Jonathan Fields, and I will just begin reading the written account of his witness testimony. Again, if you wish to call in at any point, the number here is 866-333-6279. Jonathan Fields trained as a musician at Yale and at the Manus School of Music. Since then, he has worked professionally as a musician in various capacities, particularly in advertising and religious music. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Susan, and their three children. Now on to his first-person witness testimony. I grew up in Westchester County, New York, one of three kids. My home life was very Jewish, but there was no religion, no belief in God in our home. I don't know if my parents were really hardcore atheists, but we never talked about God. Their worldview was essentially Freudian and vaguely socialist. At the same time, my parents weren't ideologues, so there was a kind of humor to their perspective, a lively Jewish wryness to their attitude. They were secular enough that we celebrated Christmas, not Hanukkah, but naturally there was no religious element to it. There was, however, a real love of knowledge in our home. Art and beauty were very important to us, especially to my mother. We had some pictures of the Virgin Mary around the house because my mother thought that the Madonna was a beautiful image of motherhood. Around the age of 11 or so, I began to realize that being Jewish meant being different from other people. Every so often, I'd get called Jew boy or something like that, and I'd realize that even without religion, I was part of a people that are somehow set apart. I asked my parents if I could be bar mitzvahed because I wanted to know more about who I was and about the people I was a part of. So I went to Hebrew school and I started to think about myself in a deeper way. I was searching for my identity and looking for answers to questions I didn't know how to put into words yet. My father loved music, so I grew up listening to the classical and jazz music that he would often play. I especially remember the Beethoven symphonies and Miles Davis. At a certain point in high school, I got really into music. I was very passionate about it, very intense and driven in my exploration and dedication to both playing and listening. Around the same time, I realized there was a deep sadness in me that I didn't really know how to explain. The people I knew explained things with Freudian answers, the unconscious and so forth, 
but I sensed that my unrest went deeper than that. I didn't really buy these answers to my questions. I think not even my parents did. Freud didn't explain things to me. Marx seemed somehow superficial. Nothing I learned about seemed to speak to who I was and how I could understand myself, what I felt, and why. My search for answers took off in music. I was truly moved by the blues. They spoke to the sadness I had inside. I sensed in that music an answer greater than the psychological and political explanations I had gotten up to that point. As I look back, I see that there were things even then that led me on the path to Christ. I wasn't the stereotypical Jewish kid. I hung out with the poor kids and poked fun at the excesses of liberal ideas, even though I mostly agreed with them. I even took a part-time job tuning guitars for the folk mass at our local Catholic church. After high school, I started college at Yale. The teachers I had there were pretty insignificant on my path, but I remember hearing Stravinsky and Mozart for the first time through friends I met there. Mozart amazed me. There was such a beauty and such an order to it. I wanted more of that. After a little while at Yale, I got very sick. I had a bleeding ulcer and I almost died. When I recovered, I had a strong sense that God existed. I don't know why. I had been curious about religion before, but now that I intuited there was something greater out there, I got more interested. People suggested various books to me, particularly Buddhist stuff. Someone gave me Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yale was too much for me, though. After my sophomore year, I, transform, I transferred to Manus School of Music in New York. There I learned about everything related to music, and much of it led me to the church. I started studying counterpoint, the juxtaposition of two very different musical lines that form one harmonious whole. The first time I heard Countess Fermus' fixed song, of which Gregorian chant is a type, I realized that there could be a solidity as well as an order to things. I didn't know yet that this came from the church. I was struck by the fact that music was more than personal expression, more than being a superstar. It wasn't about being the next Jimi Hendrix. There was something bigger and deeper than that. I saw something in music that the faith could give me, something more beautiful and truer than what I had seen up until then. At Manus, I learned about Dante, St. Francis, and everything connected with the Order of the Mass. While reading a book by a theosophist, I had a revelation, and I accepted Christ as the Messiah. From there, I tried lots of different religions, but my education in music kept bringing me back to the church. I found the beauty of the Mass particularly moving. My roommate was Catholic. One day I went to his church, walked upstairs to the balcony, and joined the choir. Six months later, I became Catholic. My education in the faith was terrible, though. I really knew nothing. And then I had to tell my parents about my conversion. That was very hard for them. They couldn't understand it. While they were quite secular, they strongly identified with their Jewish heritage. I became very isolated at that point, cut off from pretty much everyone I knew. It was a confusing and excruciating time. Being alone took a psychological toll on me, and I didn't want my parents to think that my religious decision was a result of a psychological problem. I had a tremendous religious zeal, and I really wanted to give myself to Christ, but I was also having some really serious problems with depression. I was constantly convicting myself for my sins, very intense, wild stuff, and I was afraid of the devil. 
At one point, I was very near to a nervous breakdown, though I didn't realize it at the time. I finally went up to St. Jean Baptiste in Manhattan and talked to some of the priests there. They took me under their wing and were very good to me. One Sunday morning, I woke up feeling overwhelmed with an awareness of my loneliness. I felt isolated in the church. It seemed as if most of the people there didn't truly believe in Jesus, that they weren't there with their whole selves. In desperation, I went to a phone book and started looking for pro-life people. I knew that there was something essential to the faith that was alive in the pro-life movement. I figured these people had to really believe in Jesus. I found the name of a lady who was head of the Right to Life branch in Westchester County, and I called her. She said, well, there's this priest, Monsignor Wren, you could talk to. So I called him, and he told me to come and see him immediately at Our Savior Church. I was a mess. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't shaved, and I hadn't slept in two weeks. But Monsignor Wren listened to my story very seriously. He told me, I know what you need. You need to talk to a friend of mine. He called a psychologist friend, Paul Witz, and arranged a meeting. First, though, Monsignor Wren told me, you need to go home and clean yourself up, get a shower, shave. I had always done things on my own, but I could see that I needed more than what I could give myself. I knew that I needed to listen and do what Monsignor Wren suggested. It was then that I learned to follow. I went to see Dr. Witz only a couple of times, but it changed my life. He recommended that I see a great parish priest named Father James Halligan, a very simple, very good man. He was very kind to me, and he helped me tremendously. He was living at a sort of pre-seminary in New York at the time, and he arranged for me to stay there. People thought I was just another guy discerning a vocation. Father Halligan encouraged me to see my parents again, and he even drove me to their house. My parents started to see that my faith was part of me and something they had to accept. Little by little, my life was coming back together. Father also helped me see that I was having a nervous breakdown. Dr. Witz encouraged me to get out of my isolation. He told me not to stay home alone, and he suggested that I go to a meeting of communion and liberation in my area. Communion and Liberation, CL, is a movement within the Church that stresses the personal nature of the encounter with Christ and has a strong community dimension. Dr. Witz told me I would find real friends there. The movement became a central part of my life very quickly. There was and is a sense of people, a sense of, excuse me, there was and is a sense of a people in CL, a sense of being part of a community that is the Church. This made me feel human again. It actually reminded me in many surprising ways of the kind of life I had growing up. There were four families that we were close to and with whom we did everything. We would go on vacation together and look at all the aspects of our lives together. Life in the movement was similar. When I had first become Catholic, there was always a tension in my mind about what it meant to convert as a Jew. I wanted to be sure that I wasn't renouncing my heritage I had to know that what I was doing was consistent with who I was as a Jewish person. My involvement with CL made it clear to me that converting wasn't a rejection of my identity so much as a fulfillment of it. I had found the same sort of community that my parents always had. Christ hadn't changed the method that God established with the Jewish people. I have now been Catholic for over 20 years. I am married and have three children. 
My parents and I have a very strong relationship. They see that in my conversion I have found a community that loves me and my family and them as well. The Catholic community is a really important part of my recognizing Christ's presence in my life. Through people in the church, I have become aware of the tremendous mercy of Christ. When I was first converting, I was really bowled over by the beauty of the Catholic faith, and I was especially moved by the stories of the prodigal son and the woman caught in adultery. The experiences of the son and of the adulteress have become more and more my own reality. I see that my deepest need is to be forgiven and loved, and that is what has happened and what continues to happen. These tremendous and beautiful experiences don't go away, and they make me see that the one who started this action in my life is still with me and acting in it. Today I still struggle with many of the weaknesses and failings I always have. I think that without the faith I would give in to a kind of despair. But now I know that my difficulties in life are part of a greater plan. Jesus gives me the certainty of being loved unconditionally, This makes me sure that what I found is the true faith, and it's for everybody. Everyone has the hope of being loved as I've been loved. I see the same needs in the eyes of people sitting on the train on the way to work in the morning. My deepest hope is that they can one day know the mercy of Christ the way that I do. So ends the witness testimony of Jonathan Fields. Um, uh, Let me just interrupt myself. You're listening to Roy Shoman on Radio Maria, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I've been reading the witness testimony of a Jewish man become Catholic named Jonathan Fields. And if you wish to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279. And um, I'd be happy to receive your calls. And in the meantime, I will talk a little bit about some of the aspects in the way that God works that are brought to the surface in this witness testimony. Uh, And then I will um, go on probably to a break around halfway through the show, uh, at which you could call also, and then go on to uh, perhaps a second topic for the second half of the show. The um, A couple of things I I guess I want to point out here. One is that this uh Jonathan's this Jewish man's or this Jewish boy's um uh, well let me just read what he said around the same time i realized there was a deep sadness in me that i didn't really know how to explain i think that that sadness of course was a yearning for god he did not yet know that it was a yearning for god having been raised in an essentially atheist environment but god knew that it was a yearning for god so that is in itself a uh, prayer. And there is a famous uh, conversion story that I've, I've also read on, on the air in the past, the story of Alphonse Radisbone. Um, and all, he was also a Jewish atheist, but a friend of his once remarked to him, a Catholic friend remarked to him, that he was sure that God would reveal himself to him because of his hunger for the truth. Um, the only thing that stops God from revealing himself to us or to those to whom he hasn't revealed himself, is God's respect for our free will and not wanting to impinge on our free will. If we have an earnest yearning for the truth, yearning to know the truth, yearning to find the meaning of life and so forth, that is already opening the door a crack to allow God to basically give God our permission to 
let him come in. And I think that this deep sadness and this yearning to feel that deep sadness in the case of Jonathan was opening the door, that crack. Then we see the effect that music and uh, uh, particularly Mozart had on him. And I know that in a way I'm, I mean, this is really like, I don't know how to put it, spirituality 101. But in our culture, we've lost to a large extent that knowledge that uh, beauty in itself actually opens up the soul to God. And uh, I'm tempted to say classical music, music in its fullest and richest form, actually, I will argue, is does not have a natural explanation. In other words, the order and the beauty and the power that is in Mozart's music or in Beethoven's music or in Bach's music is a, a bleeding through of heaven to earth. It's a bleeding through of the spiritual world into the material world. And in in being lifted up by that music, we're actually, a part of our soul is being lifted up into the spiritual world. And it's also opening a door to God. And um, uh, if I may digress to myself, uh, about myself rather, when I started listening to classical music, that seriously listening to it, that was clearly an instrumental element in my conversion. Uh, that, as a matter of fact, it was before I believed in God, but listening to that kind of music seriously made me believe in a spiritual world. Somehow the music itself was conveying a spiritual world which was apparent. And I think that's in this young man's story when he was introduced to the, the music of Mozart uh, at Yale. And then there's another interesting element in his story, which is a little short, short time after that, he became extremely sick and almost died. And in that illness, as he said, I had been curious about religion before, but now I intuited that there was something greater out there. When I recovered, I had a strong sense that God existed. So God used that severe illness in order to somehow further soften his soul and open his soul up to an awareness that he, God, existed. And he also used the fact, I, I suspect, of that illness to sever, or, or rather to redirect this young man's path so he was no longer at Yale but fully involved just in music and therefore probably in an environment which was more conducive to the continuation of his conversion. Um, the, um, uh, then he became exposed to distinctively Catholic music, Gregorian chant, and it, it gave him a sense of the solidity as well as an order to things. So again, the the beauty and the supernatural, the spiritual content of music opened him, uh, opened him up to not only an awareness of the reality of spirituality and of the supernatural and of God, but more specifically even to something about the church that's, that is a solidity in the Gregorian chant um, came in some way from the church itself. He was exposed to mass music, and as he said, he found the beauty of the mass particularly moving. So again, this flow between an awareness and sensibility, sensitivity to beauty, opening him up to the truth, because I'm not the right person to be talking about this, but there is an incredible equation between 
beauty and truth. Uh, I, I think that, again, even, I shouldn't say even the beauty of nature, perhaps especially the beauty of nature. Uh, again, in, in, in my own case, when I found myself skiing in the Alps and seeing the majestic beauty of the mountains around me, I, frankly, I knew there had to be a God. Somehow that beauty in itself was inexplicable without God or simply directly somehow opened my soul to an awareness of the existence of God. And it's rather tragic that if you think of the world we live in now compared to the world 150 years ago or 500 years ago, um, before modern civilization, basically every there, there were there was this environment all around which spoke of beauty and spoke of God, whether it was uh, the beauty of nature, whether it was the rhythm of the seasons and the order of plants growing and so forth, or whether it was the beauty found in music, um, or one could also argue the, the love found in community, which is another part of Jonathan's conversion story. They all drew the soul towards an awareness of God and an awareness of the truth. And you compare that to what, one has now, if, if one, you know, grows up in an urban environment, when one is surrounded by noise and cacophony and nothing resembling nature, and to the extent one's exposed to music, God forbid, it should be heavy metal or rap music, perhaps even worse. I mean, these things are, um, not open doors to the sight of heaven. If anything, of course, they're open doors to the sight of hell. So it's not surprising that our culture has, has gone so far away from belief in God when, when everything in the external culture, rather than raising the heart and mind and soul up to the truth and beauty of God instead, is, is, is creating this cacophonous, violent, uh, opaque shield between our soul and God. Um, but anyway, I, I think I'm going to stop there because I, I did not intend to get on this particular rant. But um, I think that one of the beautiful things in all witness testimonies is you just see you just see the beauty of God working in the soul, and you learn so much about the way that God works through our experiences, through our suffering, through other people, through beauty, through music, through the circumstances of our life, uh, to bring us, to the meaning and purpose of why we were created, which was, of course, to love and know and serve God while we are here on earth and to be unspeakably, blissfully ecstatic with him for all eternity in heaven. So with that, I think I will go to the break we usually have around halfway through the show. It's been about uh, halfway now. We've done about half the show. So with that, let's go to a short break, and then we will return. You're listening to Roy Shoman, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, on Radio Maria, back in a few moments.
Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. This is Roy Showman, and I have um, uh, first half of the show. I talked about first. I began talking about a recent um, acquaintance of mine that I just made, a Jewish man who became a non-Catholic Christian, who I was thinking of having on the show. And I found myself a little bit at a loss to convey to him what was so, excuse me for saying this in a sense, but so wrong or so so missing in his understanding of the difference between, quote, denominations in his view. That is the difference between the uh, Catholic Church and any other um, form of Christianity, of Protestant Christianity, of non-sacramental Christianity. And, um, uh, and, and I, I didn't feel myself in a position to actually uh, engage in heavy duty apologetics given the situation. But I want to read the following. It's a passage or it's a, a short sermon from the Curie of Ars on uh, communion, on receiving the Holy Eucharist, because in my heart of hearts, this is, in a sense, what I wish I had said or had wished to be able to convey. And I know we have many non-Catholic uh, Christian listeners, and I am sure that um, uh, in many cases, I, I mean, I know from acquaintances of mine, you know, there are many, many, in many cases, um, non-Catholic Christians can soar far above Catholics in, in virtue and love of Jesus and and self-denial and and um, seriousness of their 
living for the Lord and so forth. There's no question about that. They could be, they can be far better Christians than uh, many Catholics are. Uh, that is not the intention at all of uh, what I'm saying to contradict that. However, the, the reason that the Catholic Church is so different is precisely because of the sacraments and most particularly because of the Mass and Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Because if the Catholic faith is true, and of course I am firmly convinced that is true and, and the station is firmly convinced that is true, then the Eucharist is the greatest single physical, so to speak, gift that God has given mankind to nourish him during his life between birth and death. And uh, it is only in the Catholic Church and to some extent um, other um, Orthodox churches that still have the valid sacrament of, of communion um, that one finds the Eucharist. And so whatever the advantages or equality or superiority in some ways of other forms of Christian worship or other Christian communities and so forth, they are lacking the, I'm tempted to say the one great thing, certainly the single greatest thing, which is the Eucharist, the ability to receive God, body, blood, soul, and divinity into our own mortal bodies. So let me read the Cure of Ars's, uh, from a book called Little Catechism of the Cure of Ars. The Curé of Ars, of course, was St. John Vianney. He lived from 1786 to 1859 uh, um, in Ars, which was a small town in France, and he was a great, great saint. So let me just read his catechism on communion. My children, all beings in creation require to be fed that they may live. For this purpose, God has made trees and plants grow. It is a well-served table to which all animals come and take the food which suits each one. But the soul must also be fed. Where then is its food? My brethren, the food of the soul is God. Ah, what a beautiful thought. The soul can feed on nothing but God. Only God can suffice for it. Only God can fill it. Only God can satiate its hunger. It absolutely requires its God. There is in all houses a place where the provisions of the family are kept. It is the storeroom. The church is the home of souls. It is the house belonging to us who are Christians. Well, in this house there is a storeroom. Do you see the tabernacle? If the souls of Christians were asked, what is that? Your souls would answer, it is the storeroom. There is nothing so great, my children, as the Eucharist. Put all the good works in the world against one good communion they would be like a grain of dust beside a mountain. Make a prayer when you have the good God in your heart. The good God will not be able to refuse you anything. If you offer him his son and the merits of his holy death and passion. My children, if we understood the value of holy communion, we should avoid the least faults that we might have the happiness of making it more often. We should keep our souls always pure in the eyes of God. My children, I suppose that you have been to confession today, and you will watch over yourselves. You will be happy in the thought that tomorrow you will have the joy of receiving the good God into your heart. Neither can you offend the good God tomorrow. Your soul will be all embalmed with the precious blood of our Lord. Oh, beautiful life. 
O my children, how beautiful will a soul be in eternity that has worthily and often received the good God. The body of our Lord will shine through our body, his adorable blood through our blood. Our soul will be united to the soul of our Lord during all eternity. There it will enjoy pure and perfect happiness. My children, when the soul of a Christian who has received our Lord enters paradise, it augments the joy of heaven. The angels and the queen of angels come to meet it because they recognize the Son of God in that soul. Then will that soul be rewarded for the pains and sacrifices it will have endured in its life on earth. My children, we know when a soul has worthily received the sacrament of the Eucharist, it is so drowned in love, so penetrated and changed, that it is no longer to be recognized in its words or its actions. It is humble, it is gentle, it is mortified, charitable, and modest. It is at peace with everyone. It is a soul capable of the greatest sacrifices. In short, you would not know it again. Go then to communion, my children. Go to Jesus with love and confidence. Go and live upon him in order to live for him. Do not say that you have too much to do. Has not the divine Savior said, Come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you? Can you resist an invitation so full of love and tenderness? Do not say that you are not worthy of it. It is true you are not worthy of it, but you are in need of it. If our Lord had regarded our worthiness, he would never have instituted his beautiful sacrament of love, for no one in the world is worthy of it, neither the saints, nor the angels, nor the archangels, nor the Blessed Virgin. But he had in view our needs, and we are all in need of it. Do not say that you are sinners, that you are too miserable, and for that reason you do not dare to approach it. I would as soon hear you say that you are very ill, and therefore you will not take any remedy nor, nor send for the physician. All the prayers of the Mass are a preparation for communion, and all the love, life of a Christian ought to be a preparation for that great action. We ought to labor to deserve to receive our Lord every day. How humbled we ought to feel when we see others going to the holy table and we remain motionless in our place. How happy is a guardian angel who leads a beautiful soul to the holy table. In the primitive church, they communicated every day. When Christians had grown cold, they substituted blessed bread for the body of our Lord. This is both a consolation and a humiliation. It is indeed blessed bread, but it is not the body and blood of our Lord. There are some who make a spiritual communion every day with blessed bread. If we are deprived of sacramental communion, let us replace it as far as we can by spiritual communion, which we can make every moment. For we ought to have always a burning desire to receive the good God. Communion is to the soul like blowing a fire that is beginning to go out, but that still has plenty of hot embers. We blow and the fire burns again. After the reception of the sacraments, when we feel ourselves slacken in the love of God, let us have recourse at once to spiritual communion. When we cannot come to church, let us turn towards the tabernacle. A wall cannot separate us from the good God. Let us say five Our Fathers and five Hail Marys to make a spiritual communion. We can receive the good God only once a day. A soul on fire with love supplies for this by the desire to receive him every moment.
O man, how great thou art, fed with the body and blood of a God. O how sweet a life is this life of union with the good God. It is heaven upon earth. There are no more troubles, no more crosses. When you have the happiness of having received the good God, you feel a joy, a sweetness in your heart for some moments. Pure souls feel it always, and in this union consists their strength and their happiness. So this is the end of his short sermon. This is the Cure of Ars' short sermon on making frequent communion. There's not much I can add to this. I think that that passage where he he says, don't refrain from receiving communion because you're not worthy of it, because, in fact, that's absolutely true. None of us are worthy of it. But Jesus knew that, and no one can be worthy of it. And he offers it to us not because we're worthy of it, but because we are in need of it. So in some sense, the less worthy of it we are, the more we are in need of it. Um, he also, uh, the Curie of Ars also stresses the advisability of when one cannot make sacramental communion, of making a spiritual communion um, that in our hearts and with our wills, we will to receive communion spiritually and um, produce a kind of echo of the reception of communion through prayer and through that desire. So I just... um, uh, I have a few more moments, so I think I will continue by reading a um, another one of these short catechisms from the Curé of Ars. I think we're probably going to end up f- um, uh, filling out the rest of the show con- uh, with the Curé of Ars, which is one can do far worse. Um, I did, by the way, I, I, I think I mentioned that he's my patron saint. I, I took him uh, for my baptismal name as my patron saint, so I do have a particular kind of spiritual relationship to him. That's my excuse for reading from the Curie of Ars on the show. Anyway, I will continue with his catechism on impurity, since, again, it is a characteristic of our culture and something that perhaps is not um, brought to the fore as much as it should be um, in the course of homilies and so forth. So let me read the uh, Curie of Ars on impurity. That we may understand how horrible and detestable is the sin which demons make us commit, but which they do not commit themselves, we must consider what a Christian is. A Christian created in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of a God. A Christian, the child of God, the brother of a God, the heir of a God. A Christian whose body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that is what sin dishonors. We are created to reign one day in heaven, and if we have the misfortune to commit the sin of impurity, we become the den of the devils. Our Lord said that nothing impure should enter his kingdom. Indeed, how could a soul that has rolled itself in this filth go to appear before so pure and so holy a God? We are all like little mirrors in which God contemplates himself. How can you expect that God should recognize his likeness in an impure soul? There are some souls so dead, so rotten, that they lie in their defilement without perceiving it, 
and can no longer clear themselves from it. Everything leads them to evil. Everything reminds them of evil, even the most holy things. They always have these abominations before their eyes, like the unclean animal that is accustomed to live in filth, that is happy in it, that rolls itself and goes to sleep in it, that grunts in the mud. These persons are an object of horror in the eyes of God and of the holy angels. See, my children, our Lord was crowned with thorns to expiate our sins of pride, but for this accursed sin he was scourged and torn to pieces, since he said himself that after his flagellation all his bones might be counted. O my children, if there were not some pure souls here and there to make amends to the good God and disarm his justice, you would see how we should be punished. For now this crime is so common in the world it is enough to make one tremble. One may say, my children, that hell vomits forth its abominations upon the earth as the chimneys of the steam engine vomit forth smoke. The devil does all he can to defile our soul, and yet our soul is everything. Our body is only a heap of corruption. Go to the cemetery and see what you love when you love your body. As I have often told you, there is nothing so vile as the impure soul. There was once a saint who had asked the good God to show him one, and he saw that poor soul like a dead beast that has been dragged through the streets in the hot sun for a week. By only looking at a person, we know if he is pure. His eyes have an air of candor and modesty which leads you to the good God. Some people, on the contrary, look quite inflamed with passion. Satan places himself in their eyes to make others fall and to lead them to evil. Those who have lost their purity are like a piece of cloth stained with oil. You may wash it and dry it, and the stain always appears again. So it requires a miracle to cleanse the impure soul. That ends um, the Cure of Ars' short sermon on impurity. His next sermon, which I do not have time to read, however, is on confession. Because as the Cure of Ars said, it requires a miracle to cleanse the impure soul. Thanks be to God that our Lord has provided us with that miracle, which is the sacrament of confession. There is no sin so horrible that Jesus does not delight in forgiving us it entirely should we only come to him with a penitent heart, with a repentant heart. So, so although the... Um, Although we are faced with the uh, disease and the problem, he has graciously also given us the full cure. And um, inadvertently, I think I have spent the second half of the show, I guess, talking about the unique value of the Catholic Church as lying in its sacraments, in particular in the sacrament of the Eucharist and in the sacrament of confession the sacraments being means in which uh, transcendental spiritual realities are made present physically on earth through material means. I don't know if that's a technical definition, but it's not far off. So with that, I will draw the show to a close. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, you have been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Uh, today's show perhaps was less directly related 
to the title and theme of the show as um, then it sometimes is. I hope to return to the mainstream of the show, perhaps as early as next week, by having a Jewish to Catholic convert on to tell his or her witness testimony. In the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed the show anyway. Uh, all of the shows are archived and available to listen to again or to download for a podcast or whatever, both on the Radio Maria website at radiomaria.us and at my website, salvationisfromthejews.com. So um, you are more than welcome to download shows um, and listen to them or make CDs out of them or and give them to people or put them on your iPod to listen to or whatever. And I mostly hope also that you tune in again next week to listen again to Jesus the Promised Messiah on Radio Maria. This is Roy Showman saying bye for now. Thank you.